And we are back for another part train. Serm, it's just you and me, the original duo. Strat couldn't make yep. it. Um, He's out. But this was a pretty great episode. Before we get into our intro, uh, we got a couple deals and promos for our loyal part train passengers, we'll call them. First, super speed. If you guys haven't listened to our episode that we released yesterday, um, please tune in. One of the co-founders of Super Speed Golf to understand how you can gain more distance. I mean, who doesn't want to hit it longer? Heard of it? We've got a promo code for you. <laughs> Partrain, all one word. And you'll get 10% off the Super Speed Golf uh, training system. I mean, you've done it. Strat's done it. His dad's done it. It works. It works. So Need for speed. Code, par train, get 10% off. Also, we're big rowback guys. You guys have heard of it. Best shirts on the planet. Quarter zips are even better. I mean, honestly. Very, very good. The quarter zips are unbelievable. Super soft. And we're getting to that time of year. So enter the code par train for 20% off rowback. It's a great gift, too. Like, if you guys, if you want to get it for yourself, great. But awesome gift. The the guys and, and gals over there are the best. So, um. But let's get into the intro. Yep. No, uh, we, we just had a, we had a great episode with Steve Danino, um, one of the head golf professionals at Countryside Golf Club in uh, Mundelein, Illinois, just outside of Chicago. You know, I've, Steve and I grew up together, and he was a wrestler, and he was a football player, never a golfer. Um, as it turns out, the guy became a scratch player um, in three years. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what a unique journey from, you know, traveling around the country with Sean Foley and Martin Hall picking up the game, learning the game, and one, getting so good at it so quick and putting together – he's got a very successful golf school um, here in Chicago. And I just don't think you you hear these kinds of stories in the industry like, like this. Is that fair, Ev? Yeah, I mean, that's what I thought was so interesting about this. We don't historically – I mean, we had Gankus and Chambly on, and, and I know Michael Napoleon, co-founder of Superspeed. We talked a little instruction with him because he's a, a teaching professional as well. But – we don't normally have such an episode focused on helping you with your game. Um, but I thought this particular story with Steve was so unique where we talk about in the episode, you know, normally in three years, you know, you're starting to just hit the ball consistently when you've never played. And he went from never playing to being a scratch golfer. And when you, when you reach that much success that quickly in a game that's this hard, he wasn't even trying to be a teacher. He just achieved so much success that teaching kind of found him and to me right. that type of story is something that every golf nut should listen to and and he gives a lot of incredible insights in the, i mean we, we went really he really, he really does he so good and he's he's not he's a mix of kind of new school and old school i think there's a lot of good old school stuff he talks about and he's a big field guy so no it was um it was probably a first for us in terms of this this type of episode so i think you guys are all gonna love it yeah, make sure you listen to the end. There's a lot of good tidbits for your game. Stories about Tiger from when Sean Foley was teaching him, Justin Rose, as well as maybe something that amateurs are doing right that you should keep doing. So, tune that's in. A good one. All right, and we're back with another part train. As we said in the illustrious intro, Steve Danino. By the way, Steve, before we uh, have you on here, <laughs> that last name. I, I, I just can't stop saying it. Danino, Steve Danino. So, Steve, <laughs> one of the things we like to do on the train is we like to ease our guests in. We like to give you a little warm-up at the range. We like to start you off with a little something fun, okay? So okay. we know that you're a guy that's got guts, got toughness, okay? Former wrestler, 
football player. He got into golf late. We'll get into that. But we thought we'd have a little fun between comparing some wrestling with some golf. So I've got three right. scenarios for you, and we want you to tell us what requires more guts. We've got two options in each, oh. okay? All right, I'm in. I'll go first. Number one, wearing a plastic sweatsuit and dropping 10 pounds in a week to make your weight class or stepping up to the first tee of a tournament with a gallery after having the shanks on the ring. <laughs> oh, man. Um, definitely stepping up to the first tee with the shanks. Uh, there's no doubt about it. Like the, the, the dropping the weight with the plastics, it's more just like, dang, I wish I didn't have to do this for two hours as I'm running around Portage Park for, you know, like I said, two hours. Uh, but stepping up to the first tee with the shanks, it's like I could kill somebody. Like <laughs> this could be so right. bad. I have no idea what is going to happen. I mean, the, the worst shot um, is the shot just after a shank. So, no, I mean, there's, there's no comparison. No wow, comparison okay. at all. Golf wins wow. number one. Okay, sorry, you, wow. you take yeah. two. All right, number two. Steve, what takes more guts? Making cauliflower ear look good on your first date or <laughs> popping the collar all round long, all, all round long with white pants and maybe some alligator <laughs> shoes too. Um, making cauliflower look good on a first date. There's just no way to, to kind of explain the, the beehive you've got on your face. Um, and it has to be explained. I mean, you have to talk about it right away. Like what's going on here, right? Yeah, yeah. It's like, you know, oh, don't worry about it. Like, don't worry the fact that my ear is like oozing right now. Um, I just got it drained at the doctor. Like, no big deal. <laughs> um, I've got so many friends and family members that have wrestled and, and what have you. And, and a lot of times, believe it or not, cauliflower is kind of like a badge of honor. It's like, totally. hey, man, like, look, yeah, I went through the grind. Like, you know, my ear is messed up, but it's like, I did it for a reason. So there's no doubt about it. I would say cauliflower on a first date because most women, they think wrestling is like WWE first off. And then you show up with this thing on your face that they're like, I don't know what to do with you. So uh, I, I would say cauliflower for sure um, over the flipped collar, white pants. And by the way, don't, don't bash the flipped collar and white pants. Who knows? It, it could be a good look. I mean, Justin Thomas, you know, Robert Rock. I could see a guy like that pulling it off, but yeah, it's, it's Robert uh, Rock. But, yeah. but cauliflower for sure. Cool. So actually, th I, I am curious about cauliflower ear. So to your point about it being a badge of honor, is yeah. it the fact that you neglect treatment that makes it look like that eventually, or like is, is it preventable? Is it treatable? Like I don't, I never understand how they get to that point. Yeah. So. Um, Cauliflower pretty much happens when you do not wear uh, your helmet or ear kind of guard uh, right. during practice and matches. So what it is, it's uh, where the cartilage of the ear actually separates from each other, kind of front and back. Mm -hmm. And what happens is the ear actually fills with fluid. So if you do not go to the doctor and get it drained, then what will happen is that fluid will eventually harden. And that's how it gets to the point where it's at. So it's, it's a couple things. People intentionally would not wear headgear because of almost like the, again, the, the badge they wanted to mm -hmm. kind of almost develop some cauliflower ear. And then, yes, too, it's the fact that they didn't go and get it drained. Uh, and by the way, getting it drained is extremely painful. Um, they didn't go and get it drained so that it would kind of go back to its original shape or original form. So, yeah, it's, it's not wearing the headgear and then not getting the, the, the proper treatment to drain the fluid that has built up in there from like the rub. It's all about 
you know, when you're wrestling, obviously there's a lot of mad interaction with your body and your face and what have you. So when your ear is kind of rubbing against the mat or another person, it eventually kind of, like I said before, separates and that's when that fluid kind of builds up and, and what have you. So it, it, it it's a both, it's, it's a, you know, not taking the preventative steps and also not getting the treatment necessary to kind of hmm. allow your ear to go to the necessary shape. I mean, to me, it sounds like you're tougher if you get it drained. So cauliflower ear actually is not a badge of honor, if you ask me. Bingo. Bingo. Yeah. It's like, wow, that guy's actually kind of a puss. I don't know. Is this yeah. an R-rated hard trainer? Oh, you can say whatever you want. Not. <laughs> no, so number one and two, we had golf and then wrestling. So this is the tiebreaker. Number three, last one. Pinning a guy that weighs 50 pounds more than you or hitting the ball 50 yards longer than a guy who's six inches taller? So which is tougher? Um, I would say pinning a guy that's 50 pounds heavier than you. Um, okay. I mean, I'm not a very big guy, and I mean, I hit it past a lot of people that are taller than me. I think it's interesting with golf. It's, it's not necessarily about sheer power or force. It's more about speed, and, and you know, it's, it's it's amazing, like a guy like Cameron Champ, obviously, who won this past week. Um, he's not big in any form, I mean, but the guy is the, the number one driver on tour in terms of distance. So um, it's more about how you can kind of load that club, deliver it, give it some speed, and then ultimately uh, strike it in the center of the face will give you the smash factor and the, the angle and such that you want to come out. So, you know, when it comes to trying to pin somebody that's 50, 50 pounds heavier than you, I mean, 50 pounds is a lot of weight. Um, I guess I can reference kind of like uh, when McGregor kind of moved up in the weight class to kind of fight uh, Diaz there. Uh, I don't sure. know when it was, maybe like a couple of years ago, but that, that, even that 15 to 20 pounds, it's a lot. So when you're talking about 50 pounds, you're talking about a lot of mass that's much different. Now, if you get them in the right leverage, you can make it happen, but th there's no doubt it would be tougher to pin somebody 50 pounds heavier than it would be to hit it 50 yards pass somebody that I think you said six inches taller for sure. Okay. Well, sir, okay. Dino's warm. All right, let's get on to some golf. Um, Steve, you know, in the intro, we talked a little bit about, you know, your journey, but tell the listeners, how did you go from not really ever playing the game of golf, um, until college? And then next thing you know, you're traveling with the top teachers in the game and, uh, you're, you know, you're living the dream of a, of a PGA professional. <laughs> <laughs> living the dream. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's kind of interesting. Um, so, you know, when I was in high school, I, I did wrestling and, and football and, and what have you. And um, to be quite frank, my, I came from a, a very middle class family. Um, we didn't have a lot of excess income. So, you know, golf wasn't even really on the radar. Um, I had a set of clubs when I was a kid, but it was because the neighbor next door was like doing a garage sale and he gave me these like wooden clubs. They were physically wood, like the wood, yep. the wood, the, the irons were, you know, rusted. And, um, so I think I played maybe one time in my youth. Um, and, and it was, it was at you know, the local Indian boundary and, and I probably swung and missed more than I, that I made contact. But, um, so after high school, um, I was in the trades to become a tradesman. Um, and at that point, the recession was kind of at its peak. So I couldn't get a job. I, I you know, I was just kind of struggling, just to kind of figure out what I was going to be doing. Uh, and at the time, I was working at a local jewel. Uh, my girlfriend at the time, my wife now, was in school. So at that point, I was like working, I think it was like six to two at jewel. 
I would get off and I was working like Monday through Friday. So I was like, well, what am I going to do with myself? So I actually was like, you know, I always want to play golf. Let's pick this up. Let's see if we can, we can do this. So the first set I bought, I'll never forget. I walked into Dick's and the guy, you know, saw me swing on the, the monitor and I don't think he really paid attention, but he sold me all graphite shafts, uh, sure. <laughs> like a graphite regular box set. And before you know it, like two days later, I was back in because I like snapped a seven iron. It like didn't hold my speed, whatever the case may be. So I, I bought Walter Hagen, the iron set from Dick's again, nothing very big, but I was just practicing like crazy. I just kind of fell in love with it. Um, yep. To me, there's still nothing better than putting in some headphones, going out, getting a large bucket of golf balls and just going on the range, kind of practicing. I, it's just one of those things that uh, I really enjoyed. So start off just kind of playing, kind of figuring things out, took a couple lessons here and there because I wanted to get better. Um, so as this, the recession was hitting, again, everything was kind of off. I couldn't get a job. I, I wasn't figuring things out. I was playing a lot of golf. So about two and a half years or so after I uh, started playing, I was somewhere around like a two handicap. Uh, <laughs> again, I was hitting a lot of golf balls, playing a lot of golf, uh, figuring things out. Um, and at that point, I had a buddy of mine who actually is the same Pat Strad as well, named Cavaro, and, and he was like, hey, man, would you yeah, be we- interested in maybe going to the golf academy? He's like, I'm thinking about going. And I was like, I, I, to be quite frank, I was like, I never even considered it or thought about it. Yep. Um, so at that point, I kind of looked into it, and I was like, well, like this might be kind of cool if I could kind of go and do this. And by the way, prior to even considering this, my wife's parents had this like huge old video camera uh, kind of the ones where you'd have to kind of rest it on your shoulder and you put that little Absolutely. You know, tape looking thing in there. Right. And what I was doing is I was pulling the golf cart up behind me and filming myself, my whole practice session. Then I'd go home and I'd plug in the auxiliary cords into the back of the TV and I'd sit there and watch my practice session. This yes. is how like intense and crazy I got with this. And, you know, I was trying to figure wow. it out and, and I was even looking back at the camera after I hit a shot and I'd be like, oh, that was thin or that was heavy or whatever the case may be. And I was trying to figure out my own swing and how I can kind of make it better. Um, so that's incredible. Yeah, it, it, it's kind of it's kind of interesting. Um, and then so pretty much at that point, I was like, all right, well, the union's not working out like I can't get a job. I'm just kind of straggling along like I got to figure something out. So I, you know, approached my wife or again, girlfriend at the time. And I was like, you know what do you think about this? And she's like, let's do it. So I was like, really? And then she's like, yeah, like, if you want to do that, let's do it. So sure enough, like that kind of is how it all started. I went to the golf Academy. I met uh, an instructor named Todd Stones, who is in the Chicagoland area. Uh, I stayed in touch with him for quite a while. And that's kind of how my whole career got rolling. Uh, I ended up working at a country club in Massachusetts called Worcester country club. It's actually the host of the first ever Ryder Cup in 1927. Uh, spent two seasons there. And then at that point, I wanted to kind of get my teaching career sort of started. So I took a job with a, a company called Low Country Lessons down in Charleston, South Carolina, and spent about a year and a half or so there. And then got the call from Todd Stones, who I just mentioned a moment ago. And he was looking for a senior instructor to kind of come on with him. Yeah. Uh, so spent a number of years with him and then, you know, through that and through other things, got in touch with other guys. So, um, and the way that I really kind of started getting going with these other instructors in terms of kind of going around the country and, and doing a bunch of these revolution golf schools is Andrew Rice was 
looking for somebody to come help him up at Whistling Straits, which is not too far from where I'm at, to do a Revolution Golf School. So I, I reached out to him. I said, hey, man, I would, I'd love to kind of come and do this. And you know, Even if I'm observing, like, I don't have to teach. Like, that's not important to me. But, you know, if I can come just watch you guys teach, uh, that would be awesome. So from that point, Andrew and I clicked. Uh, you know, we had a great time down in, at Kohler and Whistling Straits and what have you. And uh, so at that point, he was like, hey, man, like, I'm looking for somebody that, you know, can come help assist me with my golf schools in Savannah as well as kind of help me going around and doing these revolution golf schools. Would you be interested? Um, and at that point I was like, yeah, man, let's do this. Like to me, it's, it's, I, I was ready for kind of a little bit of a fresh change from where I was at and, and, and it kind of all worked out. So I was able to kind of, you know, teach with a bunch of really good instructors and, and not only teach alongside them, but, you know, just have cool conversations with them and, and, and kind of be a fly on the wall to a, to a degree uh, you know, just to some of the conversations they had and, and the things that I learned from that is incredible. So, uh, Absolutely. pretty much from, from college till now, it's kind of how it all, how it all went. So Steve, I feel like this is going to be the classic question, but I think it's one of the most interesting things about your story is when you think about someone that picks up a golf club for the first time from two to three years, it goes from usually takes about a year or so to even start hitting it consistently right mm-hmm. and then two to three years it's just trying not to lose as many balls from two to three yeah. years for you you went from not really ever playing to being scratched so i know that's the probably a question you get asked a lot but i want to know yeah how much of that people are probably going to assume you were just naturally talented and i know you really value hard work is there a way that you could maybe plot key moments or practice styles or your mental approach there had to be something that you did differently that allowed you to get better so quickly because Mm -hmm. again the two to three year period is usually just ball striking and learning how to do it whereas what it takes to become a scratch is the whole game short game and everything so Mm -hmm. yeah how did how did you do that per se yeah it's a good question Uh, i think there's a couple moments that kind of stick out to me and as you said um you, you know one of the the coolest things in terms of the coolest compliments that i've ever gotten uh was from my wife and somebody asked her almost like the same question she was like you know or, or they were like you know I, I don't get it like how does Steve get so good so fast she looked at me and she goes she worked his ass off right and she said that and like that was like one of the like I said, one of the highlights for me is like the fact that she was like yeah listen like he put in the time and he really worked hard so uh, first off, I'm going to definitely say it was definitely hard work. Um, I, I guess I would say this, a couple things. Um, I do feel like I was somewhat, um, athletically gifted to a degree, um, just in terms of my experience. Now, here's what I will say is that even in my teaching now, um, to me, athleticism is something that is just it, it, like a lot of times it's easy for us to say, well, athleticism is kind of like a God-given talent and it's just built and, and, and so on and so forth. Now, I agree to a degree, um, but what I would say is that I think that a lot of your athleticism is because of the experiences or the other things that you've done at, throughout your life. So um, I, I, I've never been this huge, big guy. So I felt like I've always had to grind and work hard at everything that I've done. So so a couple things. I would say that the athleticism in terms of my previous experiences has definitely helped. I played hockey as a kid, uh, you know, 
uh, baseball, all the all the sports that kind of require you to have hand-eye coordination and so on and so forth. And I feel like I worked really hard at those things. So I think that that athleticism definitely helped. Uh, the other thing that helped is I was working at a Dick's Sporting Goods just over like the holidays, um, just for, I don't know, a couple months. And, and there was a PGA pro there, Ken Royce, who I'm still pretty good friends with now. Um, and I'll never forget, he was like, oh, in order for you to like pass the PAT, you would need to chip like, I don't know if he said like seven out of 10 in like a three foot circle. So then I like that to me, like sparked an interest in terms of like the short game, because it kind of gave me a goal or, or an idea of it to kind of go around. Um, so in terms of the, I guess to answer your question, the hard work would definitely be number one to me. If, if you're out there grinding and I was hitting, you know, four five, six large buckets a day. So that was definitely one of them. Uh, the athleticism or, or the, the previous experiences that led, I think, to things being maybe a little bit easier for me. Um, and then overall, kind of the idea with the short game specifically of like, oh, like I need to be able to do this in order to kind of pass this PAT or, or what have you to kind of become a golf professional. I think those three things, I guess, kind of sparked or, or kind of increased my movement forward. Um, that that would kind of say be what I say, and then uh, again to a degree, a lot of it had to be the other things that it did. For example, um, David Ledbetter, in I don't even know when this thing was designed, but I don't know. Let's say the early to mid two thousands. It was this computer program, and what you did is you would film your own swing, and then there was a side by side comparison to you and Charles Howell. <laughs> and what you would do is if you know, let's say you were looking at your swing compared to his, if your swing went, let's say inside on the takeaway compared to his, you'd be like, okay, well, I need a fix for that. And then there'd be a video or a drill associated with that to kind of help you along. Um, so like I would watch that and do that constantly. And then, you know, the Phil Mickelson uh, short game video came out and, and I would just really kind of classify it as just kind of be addicted, kind of a golf junkie and just wanting to figure out everything I possibly could to, to make it better. And also, I've got this this really good friend of mine who every time he beat me would rub it in my face to the crazy extreme. So that was a driving force, obviously, to keep getting that'll get you well. going. So yeah, he he would he would just beat up on me re- relentlessly to be like, oh man, beat you again today, beat you again, and I was like, all right, this is enough of this. Like I'm not losing anymore. So um, I don't know if I fully answered your question, but those would be the things that I feel like stick out in my mind as to why I got from where I was to where I am now. Yeah. And I have one follow-up and maybe the video work is the answer, but um, I think the hard work, I think it's obvious that you have to work hard to get that. But I want to dig in on that a little bit more because I think a lot of people hit large buckets for years and Mm -hmm. their handicap never changes and i Mm -hmm. think a lot of times that's because they're practicing the wrong stuff or they're 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 banging balls with no thought process or a flawed move and so Mm -hmm. i'm fascinated by that because i'm curious was there anything in the hard work that helped you progress faster than the, the you know the normal player yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I can't say that I feel like there was anything in particular that um, it, within the hard work that changed. I, I think that I was 
the one thing I felt like I always did is I put a lot of pressure on myself to hit every shot really good. It was mm. never like, oh, I'm just going to go out there and beat a large bucket. I felt like every shot was kind of had a purpose or an intention. Um, and I feel like that really helped me. Um, mm. For example, if I hit a bad shot, like I was kind of upset with myself. Um, it wasn't like, oh, I got another ball. Let me just try again. I was never, it never felt like it was just like, oh, I'm rifling golf balls and just hitting shots and just kind of out there. I felt like every shot was like, kind of live or die. So I think to a degree, I think, you know, my, the skill aspect of it, I think really increased because of that. And I feel like I was really kind of paying attention to every shot. It wasn't just like, Oh, Hey, I'm going to go after work and hit a large bucket of balls. I think it was like, no, like I'm grinding away. Like every shot I want it to be as good as possible. So I think the intention to hit every shot as good as physically possible within the hard work, I would say is probably the thing I believe my been the the biggest factor to that steve that that's interesting i, I mean when i look back when i was growing up playing and by the way i know what syst- computer system you're talking about i forgot what it's called but we always used to look at tiger swing you know 2000 right. british open seven iron look at tiger swing right like <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> but well for me i think when i look back when i feel like you know I, I was playing my best golf or whatever it was in i don't know freshman year of high school i, I feel like i got to you know plus handicap. I had my routine just down pat. I pre-shot mm. routine. Um, can you, does that connect with you a little bit? I, I felt like I was just so in tune to what I was doing. There was so much purpose in my practice. And then when I'd go out and play, I could really lean on just focusing on my routine. That was a big jump for me. 100%. 100%. I mean, uh, so I, I give a lot of lessons and, and I feel like one of the most common things that I feel like I hear on the lesson tee is like, Steve, listen, like, I feel like I'm really good on the range, but I go to the golf course and I'm not good. Right. And I'm sure all of us to a degree have felt that way. Right. And, and, and what I say to them, and I'm not trying to be mean, I'm not trying to, you know, demean them or anything like that. I'm, I'm like, listen, you're not that good on the range. And they'll look at me like with this face of like, well, what do you mean? I just told you I'm really good on the range. I'm like, no, like <laughs> right. what the deal is, is that you're not putting the same pressure on yourself as you would experience on the golf course. It's like, all right, I got a large bucket of balls. I got 120 golf balls there and I hit 44 seven irons. Right. And right. by the time I'm 27 irons in, man, I'm grooved. I'm, I'm hitting them good. Like I feel like I control It's like now you get on the golf course, you hit a driver, right? You got to punch out from the trees. Now you're hitting a seven iron and, all of a sudden you get one try, you don't get 22 extras, you know, to figure it out. So I think what you're saying there is exactly right. I think you had everything to the point where every shot kind of had a purpose. Every shot was kind of meaningful and, and you had it down pat to the point where you were like, yeah, this is just the same old thing. It's, it's, it's just because I'm on the golf course doesn't make it any different from what I was just doing. I, I've got the same routine. I've got the same feeling. I've got the same thought process. So I can execute the shot because I've made my practice as similar to, you know, the, the golf course experience that I'm going to get. And if we look at it this way, golf is the only game that is practiced on a different surface or a different environment than what you're going to go play on. I mean, if you're practicing football, you're on a football field, tennis, you're on a tennis court, like there's elements that change on the golf course. But the thing is that people just go out to the range and they've got this vast area that they get in into. And they're not really practicing to the way that I think would best benefit them. So, yeah, I think it 100% makes sense why you felt that way, because it was you were just like, hey, there's no difference from what I'm doing on the range to what I'm doing. A hundred percent. And Steve, we, we do. We want to talk about you as the golf pro and, and your kind of your teaching philosophies 
um, mm. fi- you know, some of your physical, you know, you know, your thoughts, some of your mental thoughts, but, but mm. for our, for our listeners to have a little fun here, Steve, you know, I know you hit the ball a long way and Steve, you and I are about the same height and you bomb it. Yep. Okay. So can you, can you give our listeners maybe a quick tip on, you know, for those who want to hit it longer, what, where, where they should, where they should be focusing on? Yeah. So for sure. So two things, uh, if you want to hit farther, uh, there's a couple factors that will really increase your distance. First thing is length of swing. Um, the longer you can make your arc in the golf swing, the more potential speed you have. Um, it just overall, you have more time to accumulate that speed. So, uh, again, a lot of lessons I give people that are maybe not as flexible or as mobile as they want to be, uh, their swings tend to get shorter. I lengthen way more swings on a lesson tee than I ever shortened. Um, again, that's a huge factor of speed. So if you can get your swing longer, um, that's ultimately going to help you increase your speed. The second thing is you want to make transition as fast as you physically can. So if you want to hit it farther, I want you to swing the club back faster. So that transition is faster coming down. You'll also increase speed that way. Um, so again, length of speed is going to be big just in terms of overall increasing the amount of time that you have to, to, to increase the speed. And then the, the faster that you can make transition, the more, I guess you can use the phrase lag, but I don't know if I love that phrase. Uh, the more you can kind of almost uh, create a separation between the direction the club head is traveling and the direction your body is traveling, which ultimately will then can kind of create a whiplash effect and also increase speed. Speaking of your teaching philosophy, we know that you've traveled a lot with some top teaching pros, which again is just an amazing thing in itself, considering that you know you hadn't been doing this for that long mm. and you got into the mm. game late. So, do you have yeah. a best story? from traveling with Sean Foley, you know, Tiger's old coach or Martin Hall that um, golf nuts that listen to this show would love to hear. The, the interesting thing about Sean Foley is um, he is the most fascinating person I have ever sat and listened to in my entire life. Um, it, it's unbelievable. He, he can, <laughs> within a 30 minute conversation, you'll talk about golf, um, life and religion, uh, rap music, uh, Buddha. I mean, it's, it's, it's so fascinating to listen to him just talk. Um, I don't necessarily have like a, a, a funny story per se about Foley, but I would just say that the guy is, is as sharp as you can physically, you know, or or mentally kind of listen to or, or hear speak or anything like that. I, I, every time I was around him, um, you know, the, the one day we were at dinner, he did, uh, a teaching kind of seminar is called coach camp who is actually it's, it's ran by andrew rice the guy that i was kind of partnered up with and and sean foley was the guest kind of speaker one of them and we went to this this restaurant in savannah um the night before it started and we were all kind of just sitting around the table chatting and, and kind of laughing and, and i don't think i said a word the entire time and and Foley just gave these stories that were, you know, incredible, you know, things along the lines of like, uh, you know, if Tiger got a new girlfriend, he would go on the golf course and be like, Hey, what's your agenda? I mean, he would, <laughs> he would say things like that and he'd be like, all right, well, you know, what's your deal? And you know, she'd want to go back to, you know, their place. And he'd be like, no, you got to get your own separate hotel and things like that. <laughs> so like listening to the stories and like the things and ways, you know, he kind of does things. And, um, the one thing he was saying to me that I thought was really funny was 
he was like, Justin Rose is like a humid garbage disposal. I, w- I said, well, what do you mean by that? He's like, every time that he is not hitting a golf shot, he is eating something. He's like, the guy never stops eating. He's like, he needs 28,000 wow. calories a day to keep him, keep him going. He's like, that's just how his body functions. He's like, every time he's not eating a shot, he's grabbing something out of the bag, he's eating something, he's always doing something along those lines. Wow, so I thought that was really fascinating, really kind of interesting. Uh, so just a couple of stories. Like I said, there's nothing necessarily in particular sure. funny, um, but, but those but, things. But to get that perspective, to, to get that perspective about the best players in the world and kind of how they go, about, kind of who they are. I mean, it's, that's gold, right? For sure. A- and for sure. And Av, Av's a big brosy guy too. Yeah. The other thing <laughs> I would also say is, which, which I thought was really cool is, you know, he would share some insights on the, you know, obviously his teaching and what have you. And, and one of the stories that, that sticks out to me is, you know, the fact that most golfers, including myself, don't play or, or give wind conditions enough credit. Um, so a lot of times what happens is when Justin Rose and Sean Foley are working together, in the Bahamas where Justin Rose has his, his kind of place of residence, I guess you can call it. And a lot of times they have, or, or not a lot of times, but they have a double-sided range at the golf course that he's practicing on. So Justin Rose was telling, I think, Sean Foley, like, yeah, it's weird. Like, anytime I'm into the, the, the wind, I, I struggle. Like, I can't control my ball flight. Things are changing. I just don't understand what's going on. And so Sean Foley's, well, well, let's test this. So Sean Foley's got a track, man. And he was like, all right, so what we did is we hit five shots straight down the wind, and we looked at his numbers. And I think the numbers that Sean Foley gave were like, Justin Rose was somewhere around 118, 119 miles an hour swing speed. He was hitting up on it, I think, three or four degrees or whatever it was, and he was carrying it like 300 yards. And then they switched sides, so now that they're going into the wind, so Justin Rose was still at 118, 119 miles an hour, and again, same five shots. Uh, but the thing that changed, which was interesting, is Justin Rose all of a sudden went from three, four, five degrees, whatever the number was that Sean originally gave me, to now he was hitting two, three, or four degrees down into the ball. Um, and Justin Rose intended like he was making the exact same swing, was trying to change nothing other than the fact that they just switched sides of the range. So like little tidbits like that, where he was saying, all right, well, now all of a sudden you're hitting down on it. You know, the spin rate is going to be more definitely side spin. You're going to be struggling a little bit more. The overall back spin that the golf ball is going to accumulate is going to be more. So it's kind of fascinating just to hear the guy talk about the things that I really wouldn't have thought about. It's like, oh, well, all of a sudden the player's dynamics are changing. And again, it was unintentional, but it happened. So things like that are, are kind of the things that stick out the most for me, definitely about Sean Foley. Um, and then I mean, I'm sorry, I think you asked about Martin Hall, right? Yeah. No, if you get anything, yeah. Yeah. Martin Hall was just uh, really cool, dude. Um, I, I taught a revolution golf with him in Tampa Bay and uh, he and his wife were there and his wife is an unbelievably good golfer, by the way. I think she was on like a couple Solheim cups and she won one of them with the team. But, but anyways, um, the, the coolest thing about Martin Hall is, and again, you look at these people and, and you kind of, I guess, get a little bit of a perception like <laughs> they're kind of almost better than you a little bit. Like, ah, oh, yeah, it's kind of Martin Hall, Sean Foley. But the coolest thing about him is the one night we were just sitting in the hotel room drinking and a couple beers and, and, and laughing and having a good time. So it was, it was kind of just fun to, to kind of see the other side uh, of that for sure. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, those, those guys have an aura about them, right? You know, <laughs> but, yeah, but they're, sure. they're... so, so Steve, we want to talk a little bit about, you, you we talk about Foley and his concepts, but we're talking about your concepts on your website. You have a quote. Once 
uh, it goes like this. Once he has tested the new ideas and concepts and believe it could be helpful to the everyday golfer, he will then start to integrate the concepts into his teaching and lessons. So mm. can you can you walk us through maybe a, a new idea or concept you've tested and that you're using in your day-to-day lessons? Sure. Um, so a, a couple things that I'm, I, I'm kind of passionate about. Um, one thing is I think that we undervalue um, skill in golf and we overvalue technique to a degree. Um, now granted sure. everybody's technique obviously helps or allows them to build their skill. But, um, the, the story that I'll give is this, is that, um, I was playing in the PGA section championship in Illinois. We were playing at, uh, Olympia field, the North course there. So not the one that has hosted the U S opens and all that. They've got two courses. I was playing the North course and I get to the first tee, which is this dog leg left par four. And I get up there and I'm playing with, or I've got a buddy of mine who's caddying for me. And I get up there and I just, I, I hit this ball so good. It carried over the bunker, whatever the case may be. So I'm standing to the side now and I'm watching this player who's coming up next. And, and his name is Nick Tot. And, and I watch as he's kind of going through his free shot routine or whatever. And he walks up there and he makes a swing where I was kind of like a little bit in like shock. I was like, whoa, that was kind of interesting. It was kind of like, you know, a Jim Furyk ass type of just odd it wasn't necessarily like spirits but it was just kind of uh out of the norm of what you would normally see so i kind of looked at my buddy and i was like whoa did you see that like that was kind of interesting and so i went through the round and i think i played pretty good but then you know i was keeping score for this nick talk guy and he came in with a 66 and i was like like how is that physically possible like watching what he did on the first tee i was thinking like he was going to shoot 80 like this is kind of, you know, wild to me. So from that idea, my point being is that it's amazing how different each golf swing looks, but the player that generally is the most skillful, it's amazing how often they end up coming out on top. Um, for example, if we just kind of looked at the greatest swings of all time in terms of, I guess you could always put Adam Scott in that, and then Charles Howell in that. Like if you think about their careers overall, it hasn't lived up to maybe other people, for example, um, like who would have sure. ever thought that Jim Furyk would shoot 58 and 59, right? That's just craziness. Uh, Justin Thomas doesn't have the most orthodox swing. Um, Jordan Spieth's got a bent left arm through impact. So my point being is that I think we undervalue skill and overvalue technique to the point where we kind of degrade the skill where the player doesn't develop the skill because we automatically say, well, oh, something must be wrong within your swing. Um, that's a great, point, Steve, that's a great point. That. I mean, I think right? especially when you were learning the game and like there was this modern golf swing, very big muscles, kind of a lot of theories being taught in the mid two yes. thousands. I kind of, and, and I think it screwed up a lot of people's games. And I think I, 100%. people got sucked into it because your swing, your swing is what you're saying, right? And yeah. take advantage yeah, of your natural, nat, natural abilities. I mean, you got to have the right fundamentals, right? And, Correct. But no, it's, uh, it's very relatable, Steve. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like I said, so I, I, I'm a huge believer in that. And, and, you know, going back to what you were saying there, Matt, is I think that the reason why it happened that way is because golf instruction was kind of changing, right? You were now all of a sudden using video and you were looking at your swing and, and it was more tangible to kind of look and say, oh, look at how you're different from this guy. Right. And it, it was just kind of more totally. like, here's how we can keep getting lessons and here's how we think we can keep getting you better. Um, and, and to a degree, it's like, you know, 
to me, there's two things in terms of the, the major skills within golf. Uh, one is striking the ground in the correct place and at the right depth. Um, and that, that matters not only for flat lies, but ball above your feet, ball below your feet, you know, side hill lies, all these things that, that all changes that skill. There's no technique that I can teach you that's like, oh, hey, when you're in this situation, you always have to make your swing like this. Like that's impossible to do. So that's a huge skill. And, and the, the biggest and most important skill is controlling the club face on every golf swing. Um, again, ball above your feet, that ball wants to go left. So it's like, how can you manage that face and how can you do things differently to make that face point in the direction you want to go? So those are massive skills that I think we undervalue. Um, again, we look at how it looks on a flat line. We're like, oh yeah, look at how good you're swinging. It's all good, but we undervalue the skill. So I think that's very important. Uh, and the second thing that I feel like is, is a big part of my teaching. And I, I really believe in this and, and this goes for all aspects of the game, whether it's full swing, short game, putting, no matter what, I really value how the right or the trail hand works for each player. I think that Again, everybody's been told to kind of hang on and hold off this club face and, and, and you know, um, rotate and you should have your hands way forward. And, and again, I, I'm not disagreeing with any of that. But if you look at all the great golf swings that are out there, there's a massive release just post impact. Well, that massive release isn't happening after the ball is struck. It's kind of working into that position. Obviously, they're right. in the shaft forward and they're doing all those things. But that to me, is kind of body dynamics and how their body is moving and how the weight is transferring, which is leaning the shaft forward. But to me, it's so important to learn right. how your trail hand and arm should be working in the golf swing. I um, mean, v- VJ's right hand is coming off the club when he's in him. So is Shane Lowry. <laughs> right? right. Shane I mean, Lowry. And, and again, there's so many players. Phil Mickelson's uh, left hand is almost completely off the club post-impact, right? Yep. It, yep. It, yeah, it, it's, it's, interesting. it's amazing and how yep. much they're throwing that trail hard. And again, I'm not telling the listeners to go flip the golf club and <laughs> do things like that. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying that we really, once the club is in a correct position, it's so important to release or, or get that trail arm to work it properly. And again, especially with putting, I think we've gotten way too robotic. Um, I don't Absolutely. believe that there's, there's the, a lot the of ways to do it. Arms should be out of it, right? That that's nonsense to me because it, it's amazing how I will give a golfer a golf ball and I'll say, okay, roll it to that hole, and, and I won't give them any other instructions. It's amazing how close they get. How the under often they get the that. underhand roll, the right? underhand roll, right? I used to roll do that as there. a kid <laughs> with John Reese, just right. Of course, exactly, <laughs> exactly. And, and the deal is, is that we our brain is way smarter than we kind of give it credit for. If that makes sense, like our perception of how far we have to hit it kind of based on looking at something and rolling something with our hand is incredible. So why, when we get the golf club in our hand and the putter in our hand are all of a sudden we trying to now make the shoulder motion where, listen, we're not robots. We're, we're human beings. We we've got, you know, fields in our fingers and we can, we can tell what's going on. So if we can really use that trail hand that, kind of lag that ball up there i think your pace of uh, that you hit the putt the putted with uh, more often is going to be better you're going to free putt less your score is going to come down and, and, and the whole deal so um skill would be the number one thing and then you know kind of how that trail arm works is is a very big thing for me well it's funny as you guys were talking i mean i was about ready to go try taking my left hand off the club through impact i mean i'm sure i'm not the only that's one right. that's right but um <laughs> this next question i had for you i think one of the ones I wanted to ask more than any, and I think 
I would say 90% of people listening to this probably have wondered this. Everyone's heard when you get a lesson. And this is a, a lot of people are, are scared to get lessons because of this fact. It's the quote, the classic quote that you are going to get worse before you get better. Right. And yeah. not a lot of people want to um, commit to that. But moving yeah. beyond that for a second, I think what's interesting is, is the time period and how you help your players balance patience during that period and being mindful of, mm-hmm. of sticking with the process, but also being aware of when it's not working. So let me see if I, can, if I can make this make sense. Is there a certain time period that you, I know it's different per, per person, but how do you guide someone to know that, okay, I'm still in that period where it's so new, I'm con- going to continually get worse before I get better? versus, okay, maybe this just isn't working for me. How do you know when it's that time? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, so, so the first thing that I would say is the idea that you should get worse before you get better. I don't quite like that idea. Um, to me, if you come to a golf lesson, you should be getting information that is relevant to make you better right away. Now, it's not going to be every shot where you hit them good, but there should be a good portion of shots where you're like, okay, you know what? I can sense the difference. I can see that there's change that is going to be for the better. So that's the first thing I'd say. Um, in terms of when to know whether or not it's kind of good in terms of, yeah, I'm still in that grace period or whether or not you're getting kind of bad golf lessons to agree is I think that it should show in the results of of a good portion of the shots that you're hitting. Again, if, if you're hitting shots and you're trying to do what the instructor is telling you to do and you're not hitting any of them good, the information might, might not be correct to what you need to be doing. Um, now, if you're hitting, you know, a good portion of them, maybe not so great, but then the ones where you're like, oh, yeah, like I did it there and I made it work and that was it. Okay, the shot should show you that. So, I guess the best thing would be is, is to say the ratio should be kind of working. it, starting to work in your favor. The more you're starting to work at these changes and the more you're starting to get, you know, the right things to happen. If you're not seeing that ratio start to improve. And again, that ratio should be improving fairly quickly. Now, again, the first lesson might be awkward because you got your change, your grip, your, your setup's changing. All of a sudden you're struggling with that. But once you kind of get past those things, you should start seeing gradual increase. Um, now, here's what I will also say is that it, it, it really depends on when you make changes as well. Um, so, for example, during the season, it shouldn't be like, hey, I'm making a swing change. It really shouldn't be that way. It should be, all right, hey, I'm adjusting the, the club face a little bit so that my slice isn't bad. Or, or um, and, and by the way, when I say adjusting the club face, it, it could be the grip position or how your wrists work or whatever the case may be. The, the real changes should be made when you're not concerned about going and playing golf on Saturday with your buddy. Um, it should be okay. Uh, for example, I'm in the Chicagoland area. So it's like from about late April till, you know, mid to late October, that's kind of our season. That's when you should be out there. You should be having a good time. You should be shooting as good of scores as you can be. And then, okay, come, uh, come November to, to the end of March. All right. Well, if I need to make these adjustments or these changes, that's the time to do it. Because at that time, you could put forth all your effort into what it is those changes should be. So I think it's, it's not only the, the grace period that you're kind of talking about, but it's also the time of year that you're doing it. So, for example, if a guy comes to me in April, golf season's just starting, and all of a sudden he's like, hey, man, I want to rebuild this. It's like, all right, well, like that's not going to work out that well because 
on Saturday, you're going to want to go play golf. And, and you know, it, how easy is it to make changes while you're also trying to shoot a score and also trying to have, you know, a, a couple of beers with your buddy and have a good time. So it's it, a couple things, I guess. It would be the time of year in which you do it. Uh, you should see progress relatively soon after you're doing it, at least, you know, visually and, and ball flight wise, you see the progress. And then ultimately during the season, it's just kind of those small little tweaks to try and make you play better while you're in the game. And I think that's good perspective. We, you know, we've had some teachers on the show, George Gankis, um, you know, Brandel Chambly, you know, he's written a book on instruction and we've had mm-hmm. super speed, super speed co-founder, Mike Napoleon. They talked about what mm-hmm. amateurs really get wrong, which is, you know, good perspective, but is there anything amateurs get right, Steve, or things that they should keep doing? um yeah i mean for sure of course i listen i think that there's way better pieces in the golf swing meaning a lot of the people that come to me there's so many good things that they do within the golf swing that we just have to kind of again wean out some of the small little i don't know deficiencies imperfections however you want to call it again I, i think it's more the fact that we've got to build on the fact that not everybody has eight hours a day, you know, six large buckets a day, whatever the case may be to go make changes. We got to realize that we're working with people that, you know, have jobs, they've got responsibilities. They can't be going to the range four or five days a week. We've got to, as golf instructors, we've got to make sure that we are giving them the correct information. That's going to help them right away. Again, they don't have to look like Adam Scott. They don't have to look like whoever. And I think that's the, one of the greatest things that you just brought up in terms of you know, George Gankis, I think one of the greatest things that he did was, you know, I watched the, I think it was Chris Como's show that, you know, it's like uh, the swing expedition where you're talking about George Gankis and Matt Wolf was there. And, and, and he talked about how Matt Wolf came to him and he kind of had that move already. And what George Gankis did with Matt Wolf is he just strengthened the club face as it came down so that, you know, he made his move going back where that kind of deep shaft, he shallowed it out. But the problem is that Matt Wolf was, I think, always kind of flaring it to the right. He couldn't control the club face. So he, he kind of added a little bit of what's called flexion or strengthening the club face coming down. And that ultimately kind of made him more consistent, more controllable, so on and so forth. So I think that we have to approach a lot of the people that especially come to a lesson in a similar way. It's not like, hey, man, I, we shouldn't be working on takeaway and top of the backswing and downswing and impact and all these things within, you know, the course of five, six months, because those guys don't have enough time to make those changes. So it's got to be like, all right, here, uh, the, the takeaway is a little bit inside. That's okay. You're right. The club face is solid. We're fine there. We're maybe a little bit over top. Okay. Let's work on what's necessary and what's important instead of trying to rechange their golf swing. So they look like Adam Scott, most body frames that we see are not Adam Scott. Most again, athleticism is not the same. So it's more the fact that, yes, they do a lot of great things in the golf swing. Us as instructors have to be like, okay, here's the most important and the most valuable thing that they can be working on, uh, which ultimately gives them the results now. And that kind of goes back to the ideas. I'm not a huge fan of the fact that it's like, oh, hey, I should get worse before I should get better. It's like, no, if you're working on the right pieces, like you should see good things starting fairly soon. And then, you know, if there's a little bit of lag time, okay, I get it. But you should start seeing prog- progression. I mean, sure. I had Is this the- guy the other day and I just posted the, the video or not uh, the videos, but the, the pictures on, on my Instagram earlier. Is, you know, I had this guy come who was a, a cop in, in a local suburb and he was like, he's like, I'm thinking about giving up the game. And, and his golf swing, to be honest with you, was great. 
he took a couple lessons, wasn't getting better. He was working on like transferring his weight and all this stuff and his finish and his follow through. And I simply tried to strengthen the club base in the backswing. And the guy was striping. He was like, listen, he's like, you made a big difference. So I, right. to, to go just kind of in that direction, it's more the fact that we've got to work on what's necessary instead of, oh, hey, it doesn't look perfect. All right. So Steve, is it fair to say that maybe like just it's your job to am, amateurs have a lot of times they have a good move or a decent move and encouraging them to just kind of, you know, trust in your abilities and be able to, to work with me kind of thing. Is that fair? A hundred percent. Yeah. And again, yeah. um, for example, a guy like Brooks Kepka. I mean, everybody in, in the golf instruction world would tell you that he's steep coming down, right? His arms too high at the top of the back. Totally. Swing. He's got both left wrist. He's steep coming down. And I mean, <laughs> The guy's track record speaks for itself, but how many people would be like, oh, no, we got to change that? Like, no, we don't have to change that. We've got to get the matchups. We've got to get the positions of the club base to match that so he can hit his shot. Every shot he hits is a small little fade. Okay, well, why get him more to the inside? It doesn't make sense, right? Uh, Lee Trevino was, was standing open with a stance. He was pointing way left, and then he hit this inside push cut. Okay, well, the guy did great. He was one of the best drivers to ever play. Jack Nicklaus, arm was high. He kind of... Sh- laid back. I mean, the list goes on and on. So yeah, I just think that there's, there's so much more importance to, to making sure that things match up as opposed to making things look as you want them to look. Yeah, Steve, this next question I had actually is, is reference to that. And actually a lesson, um, I took a train up to Chicago before a member guest I had and, and <laughs> Sir Matt gave me a little three hour short game session. We only got a well, couple questions. Right we got a couple <laughs> questions for you, and then we'll get you out of here. I know we're going a little bit longer than we normally do, but I know the listeners yeah. are loving everything that you're saying, so we'll keep it going. But here, here's the thing: some people may think I'm an idiot to say this, which is fine because you know I'm a seven handicap. I've been as low as a five, and it might sound like a no-brainer to some people, but I never figured this out until I talked with Cermak. So I used to think that my short game. I, I, I used to have this um like this idea like in putting. I, I, I took the mentality of putting where you should never use your your hands or your wrists kind of mm. around the greens altogether. So I had this weird thing that I should never use my hands or my wrists and I had to bring a truncated version of my swing around the greens. And Cermak mm. taught me that no, those are two t- entirely different things. The way I'm the way I'm hitting the ball around the greens in my short game is mutually exclusive of my full swing. And so he taught me that you let the lie dictate the motion. So you sweep it with your arms and your hands. If it's a good lie, if it's a bad lie, you kind of gouge it out. And that was a breakthrough for me. I've never felt this confident around the greens. And he kind of told me, hey, you played baseball, you have great hands. Use your hands, you know, and it was such a breakthrough. I'm curious if guys got great this. hands. I, I got good hands, you know. I didn't even know. <laughs> Just didn't even know it. I didn't even know. I had great hands, and I'm curious if you see this a lot with other players because if it was a breakthrough for me, and I, you know, I never had this instruction before, and I got down to a five, like I'm, I'm sure there's other people that that try and take their swings to the to around the green. One hundred percent, yeah. And again, I think that. At times, people try to make things simple um, and ultimately make it more complicated because of that. Um, so, so what Cermak is saying, which is, is spot on, Matt's spot on with what he's saying, is that, okay, if you've got a good lie around the green, if you've got a fairway cut, you've got a fringe situation, 
you can use something that doesn't use the arms because there's no real issue with you know the amount of grass or the the height of the grass or any of that so the club can land at a good angle and kind of give you the desired results you're looking for as soon as you get into the grass in terms of the longer grass you absolutely need a club to swing more upright so that you're coming downward more at the golf ball and also not only that but the fact that depending on the the trajectory in which you're trying to hit the golf ball you've got to alter your swing path to make that make sense as well so for example let's say you are around the greens you are on the short kind of fairway cut of rough or or, or around the green kind of the apron or, or the run up to the green whatever the case may be you're trying to hit a lower shot well as the ball gets further back in your stance your swing path or the way that the club head should work around you should be more flat more around so it should be kind of a lower more kind of rounded motion that makes sense because the sure. angle is correct depending on where the ball position is so then let's talk about the opposite let's say the ball position is now forward well at that point the club has to be picked up rather dramatically because the bottom of the swing now is you know eight inches more forward than it used to be so by you picking that club up more dramatically it gives you more time before that club had then re-arised back at the ball which ultimately gives you the bottom of the swing that you're looking for. Um, so 100%, I just think it's so easy for players to, and, and part of that is it's, it's my job or other instructors' job to, to kind of make sure that people understand that, is that the, the, there is a massive difference. And again, this kind of, I think goes back a little bit into the skill aspect of it. Again, it can't be this robotic motion. We've got to be able to adjust and we've got to be able to, to make changes depending on the lie. So if the ball's above your feet and you're hitting a short game shot, well, if you pick that club straight up, now that club's going to dig into the ground too early. Like there's things that, that have to change. So I see it all the time. Absolutely. I think you're going on the right direction in terms of making sure that your swing is changing depending on the lie and it should, we need it to. Well, Steve, you know, I'm glad to hear that Sir Max on the right track. I'm on the right track. I'm sure a lot of listeners after hearing Thanks. you talk Thanks, Steve. for 55 minutes is going to be on the right track. Thanks so much for coming on. Um, you got it. If you guys want to learn more from Steve, look at Steve Danino Golf. That's D-I-N-I-N-O uh, on Instagram and stevedaninogolf.com. Anything else you want to leave our listeners with? No, I mean, uh, you know, if I could ever do anything for any of them, if they're looking, if they like the information that I'm saying, um, I do do online lessons. Uh, what that is, is pretty much you send me your swing and I'll kind of assess kind of what you need to be working on. I'll send you a, a video summary of, of what I would like to see and some drills that, that you can do to kind of make your game better. So if you're maybe tired with the same old routine, and you're looking for something different, I'm happy to help. You can find any of that information on my website as well. So um, any way I can help anybody out there or, or what have you, I'm happy to do so. Love it. Awesome. Thanks so much, Steve. Appreciate you coming on. Okay. You got it, guys. Thank you Thanks, so Steve. Much. Take care. All right. Goodbye. Bye.